Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. This episode was recorded on September 7, 2023, when the Department of Defense was operating without a Chief of Staff of the Army, Chief of Naval Operations, and Commandant of the Marine Corps due to a hold on military promotions placed in the United States Senate. Since the recording of this episode, the Senate has confirmed officers for the top posts in the Joint Staff, including a new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. However, as of the release of this podcast, approximately 250 military promotions have yet to be confirmed. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace. I'm Carrie Lee, Chair of the Department of National Security and Strategy and Director of the Civil Military Relations Center here at the U.S. Army War College. It's a pleasure to have you with us. I'll be your guest host for a new series this fall that will focus on today's debates and discussions in civil military relations. On September 30th, General Mark Milley will retire after serving for four years as the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest-ranking member of the Armed Forces and Principal Military Advisor to the President. Milley's tenure has been marked by controversy, from his infamous walk with then-President Trump across Lafayette Square during the 2020 George Floyd protests, to his subsequent apology for that walk, to congressional testimony defending the teaching of critical race theory, to his role in reassuring both foreign and domestic leaders of American military stability during the January 6th insurrection. More so than any chairman of the Joint Chiefs since Colin Powell occupied the position, General Milley has been in the news. And it's led to a resurgence of interest in the position. Of course, Milley's nominated successor, Air Force Chief of Staff General C.Q. Brown, has not yet been confirmed, as the Senate has held up most military confirmations, leaving the Department of Defense potentially without a confirmed Army Chief of Staff, Chief of Naval Operations, Commandant of the Marine Corps, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs for the first time in American history. This leads us to ask, how important are the roles of the service chiefs, and the chairman in particular? Are they political partisans, the way that some today suggest? How do they exercise power and advise the president of the United States on military affairs? Here to discuss this with us today is Dr. Sharon Weiner. Dr. Weiner is an associate professor in the School of International Service at American University, a visiting researcher at Princeton University's Program on Science and Global Security, and a senior resident fellow with the Carnegie Corporation. She received her PhD in political science from the MIT Security Studies Program and is the author of the book, Managing the Military, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Civil Military Relations, which analyzes the power of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to help or hinder the president's ability to implement their defense policy preferences, and makes her the perfect person to discuss the upcoming transition with us here at A Better Peace. Dr. Weiner, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for the invitation. I appreciate it. So give us a little bit of background here. Who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? What are his responsibilities towards the president? So happy to start there. Let me first of all say, though, that any of the comments I make today are mine alone. They don't reflect the opinions of any of the institutions with which I'm affiliated. Absolutely. We're, we're well familiar with the, uh, with the disclaimer here at the Army War College. <laughs> yes. uh, so the chairman, the chairman has sort of evolved from 
a meeting manager to the primary military advisor to civilian authorities in the United States. So the chairman originally in the 1947 National Security Act was appointed only at the discretion of the president, and it was up to the president whether or not they needed one. And then the chairman sort of was one person in the room who was supposed to keep the meetings on track. But in 1986, that changed with the Goldwater-Nichols Act, which made the president the principal military advisor in his own right, not as a summation of advice from the service chiefs, but the principal military advisor to the president, the secretary of defense, and the National Security Council. And the idea behind this change was, was quite frankly, civilian disappointment in some of the military advice that, that had been received, because the concern was the advice from the service chiefs was a summation of their ideas, not choices between them, and that the advice was based upon, I would say, supporting the, the corporate identity of the military, making sure everybody's preferences were in that advice as opposed to making choices between them and doing something that was considered better for national security. So at the time, the phrase was jointness. I don't know if people still use this this phrase or not, but the idea was joint military advice, advice that reflected a cross or pan-service perspective, not that of an individual service, and not all of them collectively. And so the chairman today is responsible for giving that advice, for formulating it, uh, and specifically, the Goldwater-Nichols provides um, specific directives for advice on strategy and a variety of other things. Chairman's also responsible for managing the joint staff and also responsible for transmitting the views of the service chiefs to the president, in addition to the chairman's own advice, but transmitting the views of the service chiefs, even if he disagrees with them. So it's both a responsibility to be an honest conduit for information, but also a responsibility for synthesizing that information, synthesizing that vice, and giving his own personal opinion about what's good for national security. So you mentioned that uh, jointness was kind of the the key word or the the watchword in Goldwater Nichols. I think many of our students and our faculty here at the Army War College think of the jointness in Goldwater Nichols as uh, we are required to have a certain number of Air Force students here at the War College and sea service students and that kind of thing. Um, so the this idea of jointness what didn't start or didn't just end, I should say, at the chairman level, but percolates all the way down to the even the the lieutenant colonel, colonel, and and kind of the rest of the ranks. Um, but in your opinion, did Goldwater Nichols kind of succeed in producing more jointness, whether across the force or in the advice that the chairman gives now to to the president? So the purpose of jointness in Goldwater Nichols was sort of twofold. So one was to tell the chairman, you're responsible for giving joint advice. But the other, and you allude to this when you talk about the professional military education system, the idea was to change that so that officers who got to a senior level inherently valued a joint perspective, or at least a perspective other than their own, because they had either had a joint duty assignment serving outside of their service in another position, a joint military education in another uh, another education system besides their own service, or some v flavor of those things. But that joint professional military education, joint duty assignments, that was intended to give the chairman, in some ways, I would call it a constituency of joint people everywhere in the military who would say, oh, I understand where the chairman's coming from on this. But the chairman by himself is supposed to provide that joint advice. And so when we talk about jointness, uh, and this is one of the things I talk about in the book, I'd say jointness is a great adjective 
But if we're looking for it as an outcome, it's not clear to me that it's happened, at least with respect to military advice on strategy budgets and other things. So why is that? The short answer is the chairman is put in a very difficult position. The chairman is told, you're responsible for serving the president, but you're only useful for the president to the extent that you also can coordinate, cajole, sometimes what I call wrangle the service chiefs to do what the president wants. And for the chairman to do that, he has to respect what the services want to do on their own. So what I argue in the book is that a chairman who comes in and tries to do something that is against service consensus is a chairman that doesn't have very much power. Or a chairman who comes in and tries to make choices between the services that the services themselves feel they don't have any agency in, that chairman isn't going to have any power either. And so getting back to the question of jointness as an adjective, because all of this happens within the military family. It happens within the JCS, in the JCS meetings, and the outcome is this advice. And so the question is, if all of those trade-offs or the lack of trade-offs happen and civilians can't see them, how do they know whether jointness reflects trade-offs between the services or just a summation of their preferences? So you spend a lot of time in the book, and in fact, a, a big part of what you study in the book is kind of the political power of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, yet, oftentimes, we say that the middle military is supposed to be an apolitical organization. I wonder if you could help us reconcile those two things as chairman as political actor and political agent versus while also representing an apolitical military. So the question of being apolitical, this is a big word, right? And I think it means different things. So in civil military relations, we expect the military to be apolitical in that they serve elected leaders and they don't use partisan political affiliation to pursue their preferences. That uh, What I mean by that is they, they serve the elected person and they follow their directives. They don't insert their own political preferences into the equation. But when we think of them as being apolitical, I think where that's incorrect is we have to assume that the military is a bureaucracy, just like any other bureaucracy in the U.S. government. And if you ask a bureaucracy to be not political, you're asking it not to assert its right to advice based upon its expertise, not to assert its ideas about its own budget and its mission, because it's the bureaucracy, it's the expert on those things. You're almost asking it to be dumb, to say nothing. Um, I think instead we need to expect that the military as a bureaucracy, like any bureaucracy, will fight for what it thinks is its professional rights and the things that further its professional mission as it sees it. And that's not political partisan, that's political bureaucratic. And so what I do in, in the book is basically treat the military as if it's like any other bureaucracy and allow it to have the same political interests and the same political powers as any other bureaucracy. I mean, we would never argue that the Department of commerce doesn't engage in political activity to support free trade? Why should we expect the military to be apolitical about the budgets that control the people it trains, the quality of their life, and the forces they buy, and the threats that we prepare to deal with? 
So how do we think about a, a strong chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? You know, is every chairman a political actor? What determines whether a chairman is a, a strong and effective chairman versus, you know, is there a difference between strong and just being a political actor? Help us kind of think through um, these, these differences. So the question of what chairman you want depends on where you are. So if I'm a chief of staff of a service, for me, a strong chairman is someone who takes the views of the service chiefs and forcefully represents them to the president of the United States. And also, quite frankly, communicates back to me what the president's preferences are and where a potential train wreck or problem may be coming down the path. So situational awareness. That's what I want as a service chief. Now, if I'm president of the United States, I want a chairman who goes back to the services and says, look, this is my policy choice. I've heard your advice, but this is what I want you to do. And I expect the chairman to get the service chiefs to do that. And the reason that I want that isn't, and this is the, the really political element, the reason I want the service chiefs to do what I want as president isn't just because I think I'm right in my advice. It's because I know that the support of the military has political clout that I as president can use for other things. And this is where I think politics gets into a really slippery slope and where I would say part of the responsibility for keeping the military apolitical belongs to American citizens. That if you are valuing military expertise and military advice and a trusted institution, then the president has an incentive to give in to things that the services want or that the chairman wants in return for the right to have those people stand up and support the president on other policy initiatives. So the support of military expertise, having the chairman stand next to the president gives the president political clout on a whole range of things beyond just the specific national security thing that's being discussed at the time. And I, and I talk about this in the book about how, for example, during the Obama administration, discussions over strategy for a troop surge in Afghanistan, that Obama felt he, one of the things he had to consider was whether the military would support him on other policy issues or whether that would create more political problems for him if he didn't pick an option for Afghanistan that was favored by the military. So this sounds like it could pose some challenges for this concept that we think of as civilian control of the military. Um, others have remarked and published in foreign affairs, amongst other places, uh, that there is a crisis of command and that we are seeing the militarization of foreign policy and that there's uh, problems with kind of civilian control of the military today. Would you be inclined to agree with them? Is that context dependent? How would you kind of think about that? So I would respond with Risa Brooks's argument, which is the notion that the military is supposed to be apolitical doesn't do us any favors. The question is what is appropriately political and how do we understand that? Because to expect the military to be apolitical is something they can't achieve. And it also leads to a conversation that may allow certain types of behavior over time because the military does that, so therefore it, it has to be okay. So it changes the conversation. Do I think we're in a crisis right now? I don't think we're in a crisis right now because I would argue, as some do in the debate that came out in, in you know, foreign affairs, you have to assume there's gonna be a self-correcting mechanism. Disagreement doesn't mean there's a crisis. The question is, is there a long-term trend whereby the military gets its preferences over and above civilians? And I would say 
that happens sometimes, but not consistently. The crisis that I think is coming has to do with the polarization of American politics writ large. To win any political game about policy, you need to search for allies. And it's really tempting to search for allies, right, if you don't have the power on your own to get what you want. But if you look at the partisanship that's taking place, the polarization in American politics, we have more cleavages now than we've had in the past. And I would say if the military starts to exploit those cleavages for its own gain or a particular service does, that's a crisis, but it can't, it can't sit out of those things either because it's going to have a s- serious effect on them. I mean, you started out this conversation with uh, promotions being held up. Uh, is it apolitical for a military to not say something about that, to say that this is hurting us? That's not apolitical. That's recognizing that your expertise has a role to play in, so- in commenting on a political problem. So, I mean, as as polarization has increased, this has been a longstanding trend, right, in American politics, at least over the last decade plus, um, as the U.S. sorts and liberals increasingly marry liberals and conservatives marry conservatives and move to conservative areas and liberals move to liberal areas and we become increasingly polarized. One might argue that General Milley was the chairman during a pretty unprecedented time in American politics, not just the polarization, but the fractiousness and the protests and um, the the ex- extreme and kind of visceral reaction to being President Trump bringing in office and many of his policies. Um, Corey Shockey and Peter Fever alternatively kind of discuss when you're grading General Milley, you need to grade them on like you would Olympic diving. You have to you have to grade them on a curve. Um, and so where would you put Millie on the spectrum of past chairman? Uh, what kind of legacy is uh, Chairman Millie going to be leaving behind? I think the legacy that Chairman Millie leaves behind should be a big, bright red flag that says danger ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I think Millie, Millie was confronted with some situations that there's no reason to think he should have expected them in advance. I mean, the the walk across Lafayette Park. You could imagine the invitation to do that being made many, many times before in other contexts and only realizing at the end of the day that the walk you just took part in was a partisan, could be easily interpreted as a partisan stunt. And so Millie did, I think, the respectable thing. He said, I'm sorry. And so what I think, in addition to the red flag saying there's more of this ahead, Millie should be given accolades because he realized that circumstances were moving quickly and that some of the actions that he had taken could be interpreted in a political context, and that wasn't his intent. And to own that and to say, you know, I probably would have been done it differently, I think is an important signal to future chairmen. Does it mean that he's strong politically? I think it probably means he's strong politically in that his service chief constituency respect him for that. Is he strong politically as being a servant of the president? I think that depends on who the president is, which of course means that his actions are inherently political because if it's 
uh, one particular president versus another particular president, whether or not he aligns with them is very definitely going to be interpreted as a political statement. So I think the red flag that Milley is saying to his his predecessor is basically we're going to have to redefine what political means because of the polarization in American politics, because of the of the the fractionalization. Political actions by the chairman will be interpreted differently by different different fractions. And that's because anything Milley does will have political clout because of the political clout that has afforded the military as an institution in, in the body politic of America. So you talk about Milley having a lot of clout with the service chiefs because of his actions kind of after Lafayette Square and, and other times. I mean, for our listeners, the the context here is after this walk across Lafayette Square, Chairman Milley went to the National Defense University and publicly apologized for his role in that. Uh, Dr. Weiner, that's pretty unusual for a sitting chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or really even former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to um, publicly issue an apology for, for something that was considered kind of norm-breaking in civil-military relations. Um, what do you think that might have done for kind of resetting norms, or uh, was it just kind of continuing to, to barrier break and to break glass? I'd like to say that it <clears throat> reset norms, but that requires cooperation among people who observe norms. Right? <laughs> um, I think Millie's apology was a brave thing to do because it acknowledged that the situation has changed and that we're in uncharted territory with respect to norms about politics and the military. And I think at th- that was probably the best he could do because he has no incentive to say, I shouldn't appear when the president asks. I mean, the president is commander in chief. And if you don't obey those commands, that is a a norm breaking activity in and of itself. But at the same time, to recognize that sometimes the president or other civilians ask the chairman to do something, which is a violation of the norms of being or trying to be apolitical. And so if you do think of it as on a continuum of completely apolitical or completely political, Part of the responsibility for where the chairman falls on that continuum is what civilians ask the chairman to do. So I think it's also in the best interest of presidents to say, wait a minute, am I asking the chairman to appear in this position or to do this thing because it's really important to assure the American people that we've considered sound military advice? Or is the chairman appearing with me because I really need the political support, which I don't have on my own, and I'm going to appropriate from the chairman and use for something else, which may have nothing to do with the military or may have to do with national security, but not in the context with which the chairman appears with me. So uh, politic, political power is fungible. You have to build it up, and sometimes you use a lot of it in, in one particular instance. And so I think presidents have to avoid the cheap trick of building up their political power by appearing alongside a smiling chairman on an issue where you don't need the smiling chairman's support because it has nothing to do or very little to do with professional military expertise. So in light of that, as Millie retires on September 30th, um, what do you see as the big challenges that are going to be facing General C.Q. Brown uh, as the next chairman should he ultimately be confirmed by the Senate? So the biggest challenge, and this comes from my days at OMB, is the CR, continuing resolution. Um, 
budget politics has become very volatile. And I would say that the notion that you need a budget to keep the government moving has become a secondary consideration to using the budget process to extract other gains on other political issues. But all agencies, including the military, have to suffer through that, right? So as you know, with the CR, you, it's very diff- it destroys all of your plans for what you were going to do in the future because you have to keep consistently with what you had, had in the past. And so I think part of the challenge for the next chairman is how do you, how do you navigate a volatile budget process when national security demands that you have plans and you have to fulfill those plans, and you know, even quite frankly, just keeping budgets, uh, keeping programs on schedule and on budget to avoid cost overruns and other things is also an important part of the process. That's going to invite the chairman to be involved in a different type of politics, and that's the politics about debt, the politics about partisan political differences that get played out through the budget. And my advice for the chairman would be to stick to the military, um, the military needs that a budget fulfills and try and avoid those other things. And that's going to be very difficult because anything the chairman says is going to be used by other factions as part of their own political battles. Yeah, I mean, even with the uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, which has historically passed with bipartisan support every year, it's one of the very few bills in Congress left anymore that generally passes with bipartisan support. We saw a lot of a lot of friction around the passage of the NDAA and some of the congressional hearings around that, uh, which then authorizes, you know, kind of gives authorizations to to spend money. Um, where do you see that going? Is this kind of a one-off with contests over the NDAA and uh, the chairman and the defense secretary and other service secretaries and service chiefs getting pulled into this? Or is this, uh, is this here to stay and something that the services need to really be prepared for going forward? It's probably the latter. I hate <laughs> the bad news is <laughs> I, it, it may not be here to stay, but I think it's here for longer than just a, a short period of time. And, and this is one of the the reasons why the powers Goldwater Nichols gave the chairman are also important. And this is actually something that's not in the book, but this comes from many decades ago. Uh, my days on the House Armed Services Committee doing uh, oversight of implementation of Goldwater Nichols. So this is where the book comes from, I see, from lived experience kind of implementing Goldwater Nichols. It, it, came, it came from the lived experience of implementing it, but also realizing what the expectations were of the authors and how I thought my, I was not observing those expectations being fulfilled. That, mm-hmm. if, that, that the notion of jointness, which I think is a great idea, was being co-opted by a bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I study bureaucracy in, in all of various different forms. It's fascinating, and there's always a problem, so I'll always be employed. Right? It's, <laughs> it's great. Um, but if you think about Congress as a bureaucracy, 1986 comes along, and there had been changes by this time in Congress. And we're seeing the culmination of some of those changes now. So the norms about seniority had broken, were breaking down, and suddenly you get people who can influence the NDAA who aren't on the Armed Services Committee and who aren't senior members of the Armed Services Committee. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that can be good, both good and bad. But the point is that the gatekeepers for defense policy in Congress were losing control. And if they're losing control to um, – 
more junior members speaking out to different factions within the parties feeling like they can speak out on defense, that means it's harder to come up with a coherent defense policy. So what's the logical thing to do if you as the body of Congress can't be a gatekeeper and come up with recommendations for coherent defense policy? Well, you delegate that responsibility to somebody else. So they delegated it to the chairman. But the chairman still has to exist in that environment of, of all sorts of decentralized power in, in, in Congress. And so one of the things I think uh, the new chairman will have to pay attention to and be particularly um, cognizant of is he may sincerely express his preferences and advice about something, but he has to expect that that will be used and misused by those various factions for their own political gain. So it's no longer about trying to come together to support national security. It's about using national security as a mechanism for some other political goal. So how do you see the division of labor between the service chiefs and the service secretaries, right? The service secretaries being the politically appointed uh, civilians who are responsible for overseeing the service and the service chiefs being the military, uh, uniformed military members who are responsible for kind of leading their service. How do you see that division of labor given that you know, we're, we're looking into the abyss here of anything that you say can and will be used against you? So this will make me extremely unpopular. Uh, um, <laughs> in particular with, with uh, what, five, five different people. I have to include Space Force there. Uh, the service secretaries, I think, are largely irrelevant. Um, when was the last time a service secretary was asked by the president to stand up with, with him to make an announcement of something? Uh, not very often and not on big national security issues. I think politically the role of the service secretaries is to say something that would look inappropriate for a service chief to say, and because it would be inappropriate for a service chief to say, and because the service secretary says it may be disagreeing with the president, they can be the loyal opposition, and they can get away with more political speak than the service chief can. But we still don't see that very often either. So I have to go back with my original unpopular statement that I, I think they're largely irrelevant. One of the reviewers of my book said, what about the service secretaries? And I said, yeah, what about the service secretaries? <laughs> they're not here for a reason. It's because their role in this process isn't as important as the other players. So uh, this this leads me to, you know, yesterday in the Washington Post, uh, the three service secretaries came out with a big op-ed, uh, essentially kind of telling the senator from Alabama to knock it off um, with regards to the military hold on, kind of blanket hold on military confirmations. Would it have been a stronger statement if the service chiefs had come out with that? And uh, and what would the implications of that be for kind of civil military relations? See, that was the question, rhetorical question I was going to ask you. Wouldn't it have been more powerful <laughs> if the service chiefs had said that? I think it absolutely would have been. We don't have service chiefs right now. <laughs> <laughs> if the void had said that would have been the politically powerful thing, anonymous people who, who haven't been appointed. Um, but this is precisely why the definition of politics and civil military relations is interesting. So if I'm a service chief, really, it's in my professional best interest to say something about this, about what Tuberville is doing. Mm -hmm. But by taking that action, I'm involving myself in politics. So where, where do you draw the line between your prof professional responsibility and the larger political context? 
part of that is in the audience perception of what's said and what's done. So I get back to the part of the, the problem of politics in civilian control is civilians invite the military to be in political positions. And if you invite the military to be in political positions, then you're asking them to make a choice between expressing their expertise, but in a way that's perceived as political, or not providing their expertise, which is detrimental to national security. So it is a no-win situation. And I think understanding that it's a no-win situation means you have to craft the message carefully. And perhaps that's why the service secretary said something. But unfortunately, I think that's also why that letter probably, now maybe tomorrow I'll be proven wrong, but I will boldly say that letter probably may not change anything right now. So as we come to a close here, I want to ask you, uh, what piece of advice would you give to the next chairman, whether it is CQ Brown or whoever, uh, as he, one day she, uh, prepares to assume the role of chairman? So in the book, I look at three case studies of budgets. And again, budget it's going to be an interesting time. Um, but I also double-check the conclusions with uh, use of force cases. So I think the, the conclusions are broader. And one of the lessons that comes from that is the chairman should not provide advice to the president that contradicts the consensus of the service chiefs. Now, that consensus may not reflect good policy. It may reflect parochial preferences. But the chairman will lose their respect and power if that happens very often. The other lesson that comes from that, and this comes from mostly the, the, the case studies that look at trying to avoid sequestration under the Obama administration. So the military was asked, the service chiefs were asked repeatedly to cut budgets, cut budgets, cut budgets. And they were involved in that process. And they weren't asked to fight each other. They were invited to share the burden. So the next chairman, she should be conscious that Involve the service chiefs in difficult decisions, but don't expect them to pick winners and losers. They've spent, since the creation of the Defense Department in 1949, and even before that, the National Security Act of 1947, they have learned that they can easily be in a zero-sum game. Civilian control of the military in its strictest form puts the services in a zero-sum game. One wins at the expense of others. And that's something that they want to avoid, and they've developed routines and standard operating procedures and rules of thumb to not be in that position. And any new chairman should realize that if you try and put that, them in that position, you will fail. This about ends our time here. But if you would like to know more about the U.S. Army War College's Civil Military Relations Center and our programming, you can find us at cmrc.armywarcollege.edu. I also want to thank again uh, Dr. Weiner for your time and insights into what is surely an interesting period in American civil military relations. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this episode and send us suggestions for future episodes. You can subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcaster of choice. And please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time, from the War Room, I'm Carrie Lee. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.